right, it is that time in our service when we all take out our Bibles together, if you will. Take a copy of Scripture and turn with me to the book of Mark, chapter 6, starting in verse 7 today. Mark, chapter 6, verse 7. In our trek through the book of Mark, we've been going verse by verse. Uh, It's been a blessing in so many ways. Today we're on Mark 6, verses 7 through 29. Now, I bet you've noticed, as I have, that we have... As a culture, as human beings, we have a lot of sayings, cultural proverbs, if you will, and we know what idea they intend to convey, but then when we stop to think about what they're actually saying, it makes no sense at all. Have you ever noticed this? We've got all these sayings, we we know exactly when to use them and what we're supposed to be conveying when we use them, but you stop and you analyze the saying itself and you're like, "That, that makes no sense. Like, for example... If someone dies, you say they kick the bucket. I'm sure there's a good explanation for that, but I have no clue what it is. Kick the bucket. Or before a a performance, you might say to someone, hey, break a leg. That sounds like horrible advice. I I don't know where the genesis of that is. Or if some young man is really in love with a woman, you might say, well, that that young man, he's just head over heels for her. We know what that means, but, I mean, he's always head over heels unless he's, like, laying flat, right? So, you don't know, and then every now and then we'll say it's raining cats and dogs. That would be a sight to behold, would it not? It really doesn't make sense. Or, speaking of cats, there's two different ways to do something. You say there's more than one way to skin a cat. Who is skinning cats? And, and did someone do research to figure this out? Like on perhaps the fourth cat, they're like, oh, I could do this a different way. There's two ways to do it. Well... A phrase that really fits our text today is another one that doesn't make much sense to me. You can have your cake and eat it too. Or you can't have your cake, we should say. You can't have your cake and eat it too. Now, have you ever known someone to have cake, but they just wanted to have it, to keep it, to like, you know, look at it or cherish it. They didn't want to eat it. That doesn't make any sense. If you've got cake, you want to eat it. And if you're on a diet, you don't want cake, you don't even have it in the house. But we know what this means. You can't have your cake and eat it too. You can't have two things that are exclusive to one another, or you can't have it both ways. You either have to choose one thing or the other. Well, today in our text, we come to the story of the death of John the Baptist. Now, for Mother's Day, we typically want to have some nice, uh, compassionate, gentle, encouraging language from Jesus or the Bible or something like that. For Father's Day, today someone gets their head cut off. So, Men, you're welcome. That's my Father's Day present to you, all right? It's interesting today, really interesting. But it's the story of John the Baptist dying, his death. And I believe this passage is here to teach us that very lesson that you can't have it both ways. Let me show you what I mean. Follow along with me as I read our text. We're going to read Mark 6, 7 down to verse 29. This is God's word. Mark writes... And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. King Herod heard of it. 
for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herod, or Herodias, had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias's daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask for me whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Now, Briefly, I want to address verses 7 through 13. Some of you might have thought as I began reading, oh, he's on the wrong passage of scripture here. This is not the beheading of John the Baptist. Well, we've gone through Mark verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And if you remember, back in Mark 3, we saw Jesus call his disciples to him so that he could send them out and give them authority to cast out demons. And we spent an entire week on that. That was maybe a, a couple months ago. And so we've already talked about, this is really 7 through 13, this is really kind of the the culmination or the fulfillment of that passage back in Mark chapter 3. And so this week what I'd like us to focus on is that scene that describes the death of John the Baptist. So we're going to focus all our time on really verses 14 through 29 here. Now, John the Baptist, Jesus clearly had an affection for this man an affection for John the Baptist. This man, his, his entire life, we have already learned in the book of, the, of Mark, his entire life was, was meant to prepare the way for Jesus, for the Messiah who would shortly come after him. He was Jesus' cousin. Jesus actually says of him in Matthew eleven eleven, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. So this is a very important figure in the New Testament, John the Baptist very important to Jesus's ministry, to his even personal life. Now, I want you to notice how all of a sudden it comes in at verse 14 and it starts talking about John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. Well, if if you had only known the book of Mark and you had only been reading up to this point, you would have been like, when did he die? We, We didn't even get that. When did John the Baptist die? And so when you get to verse 17, notice there in your text, you might miss this if you're not paying attention. When you get to verse 17, there's a flashback. Verse 17 and following, that's a flashback showing us how and why John the Baptist was killed. And so that's what we're going to focus in on. That 
that scene where John the Baptist is actually killed. And so let's think about this scene for a second. Let's recreate it a little bit. John, back then, John was not, he he would not stop publicly rebuking Herod. The king had his brother's wife. The king had taken his brother's wife to be his own wife. And John would not stop rebuking him publicly. This man had taken this woman to be his wife expressly against all kinds of, of moral, moral imperatives and codes. But specifically, John's not saying it's unlawful in a sense of like it's the law of the land. When John the Baptist is rebuking Herod, he is saying it's wrong in the sight of God for you to do this. It is unlawful according to the Lord for you to have your brother's wife. In fact, Leviticus 20 verse 21 says, if a man takes his brother's wife, it is impurity. And so it's very clear, and John is calling him out. John the Baptist is calling him out. And so Herod puts John in prison for this, for calling out his sin. Now, the real enemy here, though, is Herod's unlawful wife, Herodias. This woman wants John dead, we see there. But Herod won't let her do that. Herod won't let her put John to death as she wants because our text says even though Herod arrested John, he's afraid of John. Did you see that? In verse 20, Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. Now, this is not a true respect and reverence for God and his servants. This is more like the the general fear that some people have of doing anything that might make God mad, and then all of a sudden, perhaps God's going to kill me. Perhaps God's going to put me to death with a a lightning bolt or something. I've I've told this story before, but I experienced this in my first job right out of college. I worked at a a warehouse operation. I'm I'm working in the warehouse, and I'm I'm learning. I'm still pretty new, and I'm, I'm still kind of learning. And this lady comes up to the counter and wants to order some things, and I'm, I'm trying my best to help her, but I'm making mistakes. I'm slower than she's used to and slower than she would like. She's in a rush. She's not a very moral person, so she cusses me out right there, just right to my face. And I knew enough about customer service that you had to just be like, yes, ma'am, I'm sorry, yes, ma'am, and, and just go on. So I, I rang her up finally, and, and she just storms out the door cussing as she's leaving. But the, the way that we had this set up at our warehouse, you had, to, you had to order up front, then you had to pull around out back and get loaded up because it was housing parts. There's a lot of things that you had to put in a truck or a trailer. So she pulls around out back. Well, while I was getting cussed out up there, my, my fellow workers in the warehouse were like laughing. They were having a good time. They thought it was great. And then she pulls back around, and one of them says, ma'am, do you know that that young man is about to go to seminary to study to be a preacher? And I kid you not, she pulled back around, she called me up there, and she apologized profusely. Profusely. She said, I am so sorry. And you could tell, she she was just scared, like that God was going to strike her down with lightning or something like that. I mean, she didn't give a rip when she didn't know who I was. and I was just some random guy cussing me out. But then when she figures out, oh, this is is a preacher. This is a guy who's going to be a preacher. Then she gets scared. That's what this is, right? This, this guy, Herod, does not have a, a healthy fear of the Lord and his servants. It's just that general fear of, I don't want God to strike me down. So when John speaks, it says, there at the end of verse 20, when John speaks, Herod hears him, and he's greatly perplexed on the one hand, yet he's hearing him gladly on the other. He is intrigued 
by this. He's oddly drawn to John when he speaks. Oddly drawn to it, even though part of John's message is convicting him of sin. He's still oddly drawn to it, and he's confused by it. So he's intrigued by the message. But I warn you, brothers and sisters, today, I warn you from this, that being intrigued by the teachings of Scripture or by the teachings of Jesus is not the same as being saved. Being intrigued by the Bible. You may may think the Bible is intellectually stimulating, but that does not mean you have been born again. That does not mean you have submitted yourself to the lordship of Jesus Christ. There will be many people in hell who thought the Bible was interesting. It is not enough to have the Bible tickle your ears. It is not enough to be intellectually intrigued by the things you hear from a sermon, from a preacher, from the Bible, from Jesus himself. We must be born again, Jesus says, or else we cannot see the kingdom of God. It's something much more than that. Herod had that general intrigue. It is not enough, brothers and sisters. And so do not confuse the two, being intrigued by the Bible, being intrigued by God's message, and being saved. But I want to get to that main point that we talked about earlier, that, talk, that, that, that phrase, you can't have your cake and eat it too. The main point of our text today is this. You cannot walk a line between God and the world and get the best of both. You cannot walk a line between God and the world and get the best of both. Or to put it another way, if you think that you can live in such a way as to get the benefits of God and the benefits of the world... You are fooling yourself. Jesus said during his ministry, there are two roads. Two roads. And only two. There is a narrow road that leads to eternal life. And there is a broad road that leads to destruction. And those are the only two roads people are on in this world. There is no middle road. There is no middle road. But tons of people are living like there is. Tons of people are living as if they can walk a middle road between the narrow road of God's will and the broad road of being worldly. And trying to walk in between and have the best of both worlds and not the struggles of either. There is no middle road, brothers and sisters. Herod here tries desperately to walk that middle road. He arrests John, but he keeps him from being put to death. And the the sense that you get from verse 20 is that Herod brought John before him regularly because he, he enjoyed hearing him, even though it was perplexing, even though it was sometimes convicting. He enjoys hearing this man. So he brings him to him regularly so that John can speak. But an opportunity came. Did you notice that phrase in verse 21, the very beginning of verse 21? An opportunity came. The birthday party. Herod throws a birthday party for himself. He invites all of these important people in the surrounding area. And part of the birthday party, perhaps this was even a present to this king, was a young woman, Herodias' daughter, dancing before him. Now do not get this wrong. This is not a little toddler girl showing off a, a ballet that she's been working on and everyone thinks it's so cute. It's not that kind of dance. It's the other kind of dance. A very sensual and inappropriate one. 
Now you might think to yourself, he's married to her mom. Why in the world would they do something like this? And if that sounds absolutely ridiculous to you, I'm glad it does. But this kind of thing still happens even in the world today. Years ago, my wife and I were at a birthday party for an Indian man who was the head of his household, an Indian family. And his wife, for his birthday, got him a belly dancer that danced very inappropriately right in front of him, and his wife celebrated it. We couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe what was going on. Couldn't understand how this is, this is something his wife would actually want. But that's what they did. This kind of thing still happens today. And so this young girl dances before the party. Herod is so pleased, he says, I'm going to let you make a request. You kind of get the sense that he's showing off a little bit before his guest. You can request anything, young girl, anything up to half of my kingdom, and I will give it to you right here. And then an opportunity came. An opportunity for Satan. An opportunity for Herodias. For the young girl goes out to her mom and says, what should I ask for? It's a blank check. What, we, we've got to use this moment, this opportunity, for all it's worth. What should I ask for? And his mother doesn't have to think a second before she says, you go ask for John the Baptist's head on a plate. Because she held such a grudge. John the Baptist was calling them out for their illicit relationship. And her grudge was deep. And her grudge was fervent. So you go ask for John's head on a plate. Well, she obediently runs back in and immediately says, I want this at once. I want you to do it right now. John's head on a platter. So the opportunity arises. The opportunity for Herodias. But it's also an opportunity for Herod. Because Herod had a choice right here. Right there in that moment, Herod had a choice. He had a choice to listen to Herodias or a choice to listen to his conscience. Because you get the sense from this text that Herod's conscience is pricking him. He can't put John to death. John is a holy man. I shouldn't put him to death. I know this is wrong. And so all of a sudden, he's got a choice to listen to Herodias or to listen to his conscience. How many of us are faced with this same choice regularly? To listen to our flesh or to listen to our conscience. Perhaps you've got a chance, in a moment, you've got a chance to hide the truth for significant financial benefit, but your conscience is telling you this is dishonest and wrong. What will you choose in that moment? Or perhaps you've reached the moment where you can either go ahead with sexual sin or take the way out that God has provided. What will you choose Many of us might look back on moments that we have had just like that. The opportunity has come. An opportunity for Satan to gain ground on the battlefield for your soul. But also an opportunity for you to either choose to walk further with Christ or to take a step away from him. An opportunity to train your mind and body in godliness and to say no to the flesh and yes to the spirit or to give in to your sinful desires. I think every one of us knows exactly what this is like. An opportunity came. Herodias had finally found her opportunity to put John to death, and she seized it. 
She gets her daughter to make the request. And Herod realizes in that moment, I believe Herod realizes in that moment that eventually everyone's got to choose. Eventually, everyone's got to choose. Brothers and sisters, this text right here, I think, provides us two lessons, two choices that we all have to make. Here's one. You can have your reputation or you can have God's will, but you can't have both. You can have your reputation or you can have God's will, but you cannot have both. Look at verse 26. Herod wanted to keep John alive. But, verse 26 says, When the request was made, the king was exceedingly sorry because of his oaths and his guests. He did not want to break his word to her. He wanted to save face. He wanted to keep his reputation. And in a choice between his reputation and the right thing to do in the sight of the Lord, he chose his reputation. There is a sense here in this passage that Herod was afraid when he started hearing about Jesus' powerful ministry. Verses 14 through 16. That Herod's afraid when Jesus' powerful ministry starts circulating among people. Why? Well, Because Herod thinks, this is John the Baptist, come back to life to haunt me. This is John the Baptist, come back to life to haunt me. Why? Because he knew putting John to death was wrong. He knew it was wrong, but in the moment he chose his reputation over what he knew was right. Friends, you can try to walk the middle road between God and the world, but eventually you have to choose. Eventually you're going to have to choose. In today's culture, you can no longer be neutral. In today's culture, you can no longer be neutral. Silence will only work for so long. Opting out of the controversy will only work for so long. We've seen this in history. We've seen this in history. When Adolf Hitler was rising to power, there were those who tried to stay neutral. There were those who tried to opt out of the controversy. But before long, they were forced to a decision one way or the other. When American slavery of African Americans came to a head, especially during the time leading up to the Civil War. There were many, even many in the church, who tried to stay neutral, who tried to not speak into that, to not take sides. But pretty soon you have to choose. There is no middle road. And so the question is, will you stand with God? Will you stand with the Bible? Today, will you stand with the teaching of the church for the past 2,000 years, Or will you stand with the LGBT movement? Opting out will only work for so long. Staying silent and neutral will only work for so long. Will you stand with the Lord? Or will you stand for the LGBT movement and its insistence on affirmation and celebration of what the Bible calls sin? Jesus says in Matthew 12, verse 30, Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. In other words, there's no middle ground here. There's no being neutral. There might be many people out there who say, I don't hate Jesus. I don't love Satan. But Jesus says, you're blind to the fact that that's not the way the world works. You have to choose. And whoever is not with Christ, he says, is against him. 
This is not a political question. This is not a question of politics. It's a biblical question. It's a question of where truth comes from. What will you choose? And the warning here in our story is this. The practical warning for us is this. The longer you try to walk the middle road, the more likely it is that you will be forced into a decision sooner than you want to in a way that you don't want to be. And in that moment, you are much more likely to choose the world over God. That's what happened to Herod. He was forced to choose sooner than he was ready. He was forced to choose in a way that that wasn't the way he would have had it. And in that moment, he caved and he chose the world over what he knew was right. He chose his reputation over what he knew was right. And so the longer you try to walk neutral, the longer you try to stay silent, and the, the longer you try to opt out of the controversy, the more likely it is that something's going to happen in your life. And all of a sudden, you're going to be forced to choose sooner than you were ready to do so. And in that moment, if you've waited that long, it is a lot more likely that you will choose the world over God. Because in that moment, you're not going to be, you're not going, to be going on conviction. You're just going to be reacting. Choose now. Don't put it off to later. Make your choice because you will have to in the end. John the Baptist, however, was the exact opposite of Herod. Herod chose his reputation over the will of God. John the Baptist sacrificed his reputation and and went with the will of God. Did you notice that? John the Baptist is like the polar opposite of Herod in this story. And so instead of staying silent, which would have been much easier to do, John the Baptist courageously and boldly confronted the king for his sin, saying over and over again, it is unlawful for you to have her as your wife. And he lost his head for it, but he kept his soul. He lost his head, but he kept his soul. Jennifer and I, as many of you know, just got back from a trip to Scotland. In Edinburgh, right on the main road, there is this wonderful, beautiful cathedral, an old Gothic church called St. Giles's Cathedral. St. Giles's Cathedral. We actually got to go in there one night and hear a violin concerto. It was beautiful. And the architecture is amazing. The ceilings are, are just absolutely ornate, and the stone is, is really great. But I came across this illustration this past week and didn't know that it happened in St. Giles Cathedral until this past week when I was reading about it. So in the late 1500s, the preacher there at that church was a man called Robert Bruce. Robert Bruce, Scottish preacher. Not the same as Robert the Bruce, if you saw Braveheart or whatever. Not the same guy, different guy, but the preacher Robert Bruce in the 1500s. The king at the time was King James VI. And at the beginning of Robert Bruce's ministry, he and King James were on good terms. King James was the kind of guy who tried to walk the middle road, as politicians often do. He he tried to walk the middle road between pleasing the church and pleasing his other constituencies and things like that. And so at the beginning of Bruce's ministry, they were on good terms. But King James also had this habit of showing up to church every now and then, sitting in the gallery, and then talking during the sermon, loudly so that everyone, including the preacher, could hear. Being very interruptive. He was very rude in the way that he did this. Well, one Sunday, King James shows up to to, to church. Bruce starts preaching, and here goes King James talking to those around him right in the middle of the sermon. And so Bruce just stops, 
quietly and stares at him and waits. And then King James quiets down. And then Bruce goes on. Then it happens again. So Bruce stops quietly, stares at the king, and waits. And James quiets down once more. Bruce continues on. A third time, James begins talking to those around him. And Bruce stops and stares right at him and says this to the king. He says, It is said to have been an expression of the wisest of kings. When the lion roars, all the beasts of the field are quiet. The lion of the tribe of Judah is now roaring in the voice of his gospel, and it becomes all the petty kings of the earth to be silent. He said that staring at King James. He chose God over his reputation and comfort. Robert Bruce did. In that moment, what will you choose? Will you choose to sacrifice your own comfort and your own reputation and your own standing in the eyes of the world for God's will. For Jesus says in John 5:44 to the Pharisees, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? It's a rhetorical question. The implication is you can't. But second, there's a second choice here. The second choice that we learn from Herod here is you can have your sin or you can have God, but you can't have both. You can have your sin or you can have God, but you can't have both. Herod wanted to keep his unlawful relationship with his brother's wife all while keeping John alive and hearing him preach to tickle his intellect. But you can have your sin or you can have God, but you can't have both. You have to choose. Matthew 6, 24, Jesus says, No one can serve two masters. Either he will love the one and hate the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And the example that Jesus uses there is money. You cannot serve God and money. But you cannot serve God and anything else. No one can serve two masters. God created you like this to where that can't happen. You can only serve one at a time. You can have your sin... Or you can have God, but you can't have both. Years ago, a book came out that kind of rocked the Christian world from a woman named Rosaria Butterfield called Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, where she told her story of conversion. Rosaria Butterfield, for years, was a a tenured women's liberation professor at Syracuse University, all the while living as a, a, a passionate and outspoken lesbian. She's living a lesbian lifestyle, tenured professor, women's lib at Syracuse, until her neighbor, a pastor at a local Presbyterian church, began inviting her over for dinner. He and his wife would just invite her over for dinner and talk to her and get to know her. And she said, he, he started rubbing off on me. Their, their home was full of, of love and it was full of, it was full of God's word. And pretty soon, she said, as, as she describes it, she says, the word of God started to become bigger inside of me than I was. And she became a Christian. She was converted. And when she was, she knew what she had to do. She quit her job. She broke up with her girlfriend. And she turned away from the lifestyle that she was living because she knew. It was clear. The gospel was clear to her because it had been taught to her so well. It was clear you can't have your sin. And have God at the same time. You have to choose. You can only have one. 
perhaps an illustration on the other side of things. Hugh Ross, in his book, The Creator and the Cosmos, presents a wealth of scientific evidence for belief in a creator. It's an apologetic book, a quite good one, actually. And toward the end of the book, he recounts speaking at a prestigious American university where he presented his evidence for God to a group of science professors. After the talk, four physics professors come up to him and they said that they could not deny the truth of his message. Couldn't deny it. They were atheists, but they couldn't deny the truth of what he was saying. And so he asked them then, he he pushed further. He said, can you then see the rationality of turning your lives over to Jesus? And they responded by saying, yes, they could see it, but they were not yet ready to be that rational. Why, he said. Well, in a moment of admirable honesty, one of the professors admitted he was not ready to give up sexual immorality. He knew. He knew what it took. He knew what it takes to follow Jesus. And he knew that you have to choose. You can either have your sin or you can have God, but you can't have both. Are you trying today to walk a middle road, having both the pleasures of sin and the benefits of God? You can't do it. You cannot do it. Eventually, you're going to have to choose. And the principle remains, the longer you try to have both, the longer you try to walk that middle road, the longer you try to avoid the choice, the greater the chances that you will end up being forced into a decision sooner than you want to be, in a way that you don't want to be. And in that moment, the greater the chances that you will choose sin over God. And so what I'm pleading with you today is this. Make the choice now. The choice is today. The opportunity is today. Scripture tells us today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart against him. If you hear his voice in your soul today, do not harden your heart against it. Give into it. Give into it. I know that it makes many of us nervous. I know that it's a scary thought to give your life up to Jesus and to let him come in and be your Lord and master because then what will he do? What will he make me give up? How uncomfortable will it be? I know that's scary. But I'm here to tell you, and so many other people here will tell you, because we're on the other side of that, that once you do it, you look back on that and you think, what was I doing? I was believing so many lies. I thought, I thought the sin was going to make me happy, and it, and it was killing me. It was destroying me. Make the choice today. Today, if you hear his voice. Do not harden your hearts. Right now, we're going to spend a few moments in silent prayer. We do this every week after the sermon. Give just a few moments of prayer for every single one of us individually to go to the Lord and to respond to what he has just laid on our hearts. And so the Lord just spoke to you. Now it's your turn to speak to the Lord. Whatever you have, whatever's on your heart, pour your heart out to him. And after a few moments of silent prayer where we can all respond as individuals, we'll come back, we'll have a time of invitation where anyone who needs to respond to God's word publicly can do so. Let's pray for a few moments.